The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we are uh, starting, we started a new series last week where we're talking about uh, heaven and, and what is, what is heaven? What do we mean when we talk about going to heaven when we die? And so last week we started by looking at the way that God created the heavens and the earth. And because oftentimes we think of these two places as different places. That there's the heavens up there and the earth down here, and when we die, we go to one of two places. But we see when we look at the uh, how God created the world that um, he made the heavens and earth to be spaces that overlap. And when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about the place where God makes them collide and overlap together, where God's space, which is heaven, and human space are completely on top of one another. And so there still will be an earth. There still will be us human beings. There still will be work, all that stuff in heaven. But it will be different because it will be completely purified, completely um, fulfilling work. It will be the absence of sin. It will be all God space and human space together. And we also saw last week that we can experience that now, that Jesus Christ is heaven on earth, and he came to bring heaven to earth and to make those two spaces overlap together. And the Holy Spirit does this in our hearts when we, when we accept that, that we need to repent and turn to Christ for meaning and forgiveness and obedience. So now what? Now what does that actually look like? Because we can talk about it and and it can get a little bit fuzzy still. So what are we really talking about when when we say we can have it now? What is salvation? And uh, how do we get it? What is the entrance requirement? See, because we're humans, right? And we know that there's a cost to everything, right? Everything costs something. Have you ever held in your hand tickets before to something that you really, really, really want to go to, right? Maybe it was like a concert to see your favorite band, right? And, and you... Um, you know, you had uh, these, these tickets in your hand and, and you went to the, the concert and, you know, maybe it was like a, in an in a amphitheater, so it was outside, but there was a, a, a fence, right? And in order to get inside the venue, you had to show your tickets, the entrance requ- requirement for going there. Or um, for the high school students or university students among us, think of exams, right? And I think you're in the midst of exams right now, or done them, or close to them. Um, So this is real for you. But, and I'm sorry if this adds stress to your life, that's not intentional. But you may feel a little bit of pressure to pass, or to get a good grade, because you know that down the road, applying for universities and colleges, that there is an entrance requirement, right? You need to have a certain grade point average in order to get into that school 
or to graduate with honors. It takes a certain mark, right? We know that that is a pretty common thing in, in our human existence is that in order to get somewhere, you need to pay the price. So what about faith? What about being a Christian? What about eternal life? What is the entrance requirement for that? And I want to tell you a little story that illustrates how challenging that this can be for us. Okay, this is a story of a guy named Langston Hughes, who was a, a poet and a social activist in the mid-1900s in Missouri. And he shares a very vulnerable story with us about his faith and his struggle with it. He says this, My aunt told me that when you're saved, you saw a light. And something happened to you inside. That Jesus came into your life. And God was with you from then on. She said that you could see and hear and feel Jesus in your soul. And I believed her. I heard a great deal many old people say the same thing, and it seemed to me that they ought to know. So I sat there calmly in the hot, crowded church, waiting for Jesus to come to me. The preacher preached a sermon of moans and shouts of dire pictures of heaven and hell and cries from the lost lambs. And he says, won't you come? Won't you come to Jesus? Young lambs, won't you come? Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved, but one boy and me. He was a rounder's son named Wesley. And Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying, and it was getting hotter in the church and getting later. And finally, Wesley leaned over to me and whispered, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. And so he got up and was saved. Langston felt so alone on that mourner's bench, as they called it, waiting for a Jesus to come who didn't show up. The minister pleaded. His aunt sobbed. The congregation prayed. Finally, out of shame, out of shame and embarrassment, Langston decided he'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and get saved. And the church loudly rejoiced. But inside, Langston quietly died. He continues to describe this night. He says, That night for me was the last time but one that I cried. In bed, alone. I couldn't stop. I buried my head under the quilts, but my aunt heard me. She woke up and told my uncle I was crying because the Holy Ghost had come into my life. And because I'd seen Jesus, but I was really crying because I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied. That I had deceived everybody in that church. That I hadn't seen Jesus. And that now I didn't even believe there was a Jesus anymore. Since he didn't come to help me. An honest, vulnerable story about how some of us experience the difficulty of faith and coming to Christ. And what does that mean? And how, how do we deal with the pressures from outside? 
the expectations of family members or people that we know, or years of following Jesus and thinking, There's, my life isn't changing the way that I thought it would be. So this morning, as we look to someone who I think gives us a good picture of what salvation looks like, we look at Zacchaeus. And we see three things about what it looks like when heaven invades our hearts. Three things. First is seeing Jesus. The second is being chased by Jesus. And the third is the journey of faith. Seeing Jesus, being chased by Jesus, and then the journey of faith. So I want to introduce you to a man named Zacchaeus. So this is not actually Zacchaeus, but what this, is, this is actually really cool. I'm going to nerd out for a second with you. So what they did to get this photo is they took facial scans of skulls of Middle Eastern men in their mid, mid-lives from the time period of Jesus and took the average person and put a face to them. So pretty cool, right? So is this Zacchaeus? No, but this could very much be what Zacchaeus looked like. And so we're going to say that this is Zacchaeus for us this morning. And uh, you may know of Zacchaeus. I know of Zacchaeus from Sunday school where we sang a song about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a more tree. Right, you know it. But Zacchaeus was far more than the wee little man that we like to minimize him to. Zacchaeus was actually a very powerful man. So he lived in a city called Jericho. Jericho was a really wealthy city and a powerful city for a few reasons. Um, one is that it, it was the place where uh, Herod would vacation in the summertime. And so they had a big palace and a lot of money was spent in building infrastructure in, in uh, Jericho so that it could be a nice place full of gardens and luscious greenery and stuff. Um, but the other reason why it was an important city was because they exported something called balsam wood. And balsam wood was used to make a balm, like a perfume, uh, that was very expensive. And I believe, don't quote me, but I believe that uh, when the woman cracks open the jar of perfume and, and anoints Jesus' hair, I think that's the same balm that, that is exported from Jericho. And so it was an important and wealthy city. And, and Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Chief literally means head. So he is the top dog in Jericho at collecting taxes. This would have made him a very well-known man. Everyone would have known him. And a very, very, very wealthy man. Where there's money, the taxes are higher, and the tax man gets paid more. And so Zacchaeus would have had enormous wealth, but not necessarily the wealth that people look up to. Right? So tax collectors are pretty polarizing figures in Jewish time because Zacchaeus was a Jew, but he worked for the Romans. So he was a sellout. So on the Jewish side of things, nobody respected him. Everyone saw him as the traitor, the bad guy, um, the example of what not to be. But on the flip side, 
in the Roman view of things, the guy was an all-star. Right? He was someone who started out as nobody and became somebody important. Right? He was rich. He worked for Caesar. He would have been invited to all the cool Roman parties. Right? This is a guy who was, he was killing it in the, Roman, the view of a Roman. So people may often throw Zacchaeus under the bus, but I think in this story, Zacchaeus is looking for the same thing that a lot of us find ourselves looking for. We want to be seen as important. We want to be loved. And sometimes we get confused about where to find that love. And so we look for it in the wrong place. I think a lot of people would say Zacchaeus was looking for meaning, satisfaction, love from the wrong people, from the wrong thing, whether it was wealth, whether it was from how the Romans saw him. See, we do that too. We often, you know, we care a lot about what we wear, how we talk, the degrees in front of our name, uh, how much money we make, because we want to be loved. We want to be seen as important people. But even though Zacchaeus had it all, he found himself searching, and he wasn't happy. We see this because um, of the way that he goes after Jesus. So because Zacchaeus was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. And so he took things into his own hands, and he ran ahead and climbed a tree. And to us, with our 21st century you know, Canadian Western eyes on, we think, this is a smart guy. Right? He knows he's short, and so he sees a tree, and he's like, that's perfect. I'm going to climb the tree. But in that culture, it was an honor and shame culture, which means that there's certain things that you do, and there's certain things that you don't do. Two things that you don't ever do in front of people was run and climb a tree. Zacchaeus does these things, both of these things. So running would be the equivalent, I think. I was trying to think of a good equivalent to, to give you a picture. I think this would be similar is, you know, when you're uh, sleeping and then you hear the sound of the garbage and recycling truck coming down your street and you wake up and you think, oh no, I forgot. And we have two weeks worth. I need to get it out to the curb. And so you just jump out of bed, not thinking, and then you run outside and you grab your blue bins and you put them out of the curb and then you realize you're standing there in your underwear. And all the neighbors are outside bringing their green or blue bins out too. And so you're standing there in your underpants being watched by all your neighbors that you have to see again and again and again. Right? Does that make you kind of like cringe in your pew a little bit? That's called shame. That's what it would have been like for Zacchaeus, running. It would have not been something that, that, that people would have said, oh, what a smart guy. No. They would have said, what is a rich, important person doing running? He must not be such a rich and important person after all. And then he climbed a tree. 
And climbing a tree is not something that wealthy tax collectors do either. Climbing a tree is something children do. And see, in the Bible, in the first century, people did not want to be children. This is why when Jesus takes children in and blesses them, it's so countercultural. Right? People quickly shed off the things they did when they were children and never did them again, like climb a tree. And so what Zacchaeus is doing in front of the crowds is he's showing us how much he wants Jesus. What he's willing to do to find Jesus. He's willing to get in front of everyone and humiliate himself because he says, I don't care what you people think. I need him. I need him. Second thing, Jesus is also chasing Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is not the only one in this story. I love it in verse 5 where it says, when Jesus reached the spot. Did anyone else see that? What is the spot? Was, was it, a, was it a, a, a place in the shade where you know, Jesus could stand and look up without getting the sun in his eyes? Was it a place that you know, God had providentially marked with an X, right? So Jesus knew where to stand and when to look up and to see Zacchaeus. We don't know. What, we, what I think this tells us is that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going on here. Jesus knows what's going on in Zacchaeus, and he knows where he's going to find him. And so he can be this non-anxious presence that just walks into Jericho, goes to the spot, and looks up. Jesus chases us before we even know that he's doing it. Think about your life for a second. We may think that we're in control. We may think that we know what's going on. We may think that we're the ones making the decision, and, and we are. But when we look back, we see that there was another actor in this story. There was someone behind the scenes moving things into place so that it worked out. And that's what Jesus is doing in this story. He gets to the spot, he looks up, and he calls Zacchaeus by name. He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. The public shame doesn't seem to bother Jesus. See, one of the highest honors that someone could give to a person is to invite themselves over to someone's house. It's a sign of respect. It's, it's a sign that you want to be associated with that person. You only... See, this is important. As a Jewish rabbi, Jesus is gaining popularity among the crowds. right? And... and but then Jesus goes and he invites himself over to a tax collector who's, who's publicly shamed himself. This is not a good political move for Jesus. And we see that it's not very popular in the eyes of the crowd, right? They all start to mutter and they say, what is he doing? He's going to eat with a sinner. But Jesus doesn't care. He's seeking Zacchaeus. And how does Zacchaeus respond? Well, Zacchaeus enters into a journey of faith. I bet Zacchaeus is thinking to himself when he's up in that tree, here's a rabbi who knows who I am. Right? Jesus called him by name without ever having met him before that we know of. 
which means he knows what I do for a living. He knows I'm a tax collector. He knows I'm a pretty shady and dishonest guy. He sees me up in this tree, and he's invited himself to my house. There's something strange about that, and it hits Zacchaeus in a spot. I think it's basically like saying, this guy knows everything about me, and he still loves me. And so Zacchaeus got down immediately and welcomes him. And now I think at this point, I think it's important for us to ask the question, okay, so where is salvation in this, right? If we're talking about what is the entrance requirement for heaven, what is the entrance requirement for eternity, for salvation? What does that look like? Is Zacchaeus in? Is he out? What, where is he at right now when Jesus invites himself over? See, the Christian faith is a little different than other religions, or how some of us may sometimes think that Christianity works. See, there's, there's two different terms that I want to introduce you to. Two. The first is what's called a bounded set. And sometimes it's easy to think of Christianity as what's called a bounded set. This, is, this means that there's a specific set of rules that a person has to live by in order to be accepted into the community or pushed out. Right? The bounded set is the ticket, the, the thing that you need to get entrance into something. It's the grade point average to get into that school that you want to go to. Either you have it or you don't. Very black and white. Right? Not a lot of room for movement. But the opposite is a centered set. A centered set is active because it, it's moving in a particular direction. In a centered set, there's no clear you're in or you're out like the bounded set. It's kind of like the te a team that would take everyone who tried out for it as a part of the team. Right? If you just show up, you're in. But then through the practices and the games and the time with the team, you get pulled along the line and made into a better player or a better gymnast or a better you fill in the blank. It's a movement. It's an active participation where there's no black and white in or out, but a movement towards a center. So which one of these is the Christian faith? Some people are quick to say, well, think about the law, right? You need to obey, right? We, we know that this is true. There's something that we need to obey. It's called the Ten Commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. So it must be a bounded set. Either you're loving God or you're not loving God. But others are quick to say, ah, yes, but wait. Paul says that we are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one may boast. So then people say, ah, it's a centered set. And see, Christianity doesn't fit into any of these categories. So what do we see in this story? Because both of these are at work. Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus, and at the same time, Jesus is chasing Zacchaeus down. He invites himself over. He associates himself with Zacchaeus. 
Jesus loves each one of us the way he loves Zacchaeus. Not for what we do, but for who we are. When he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus has done nothing. He hasn't responded to Jesus in any way. Jesus lavishes his love on him and accepts him and invites him down from the tree. And the tree is, I think it's a great image of, sh- of the shame of Zacchaeus, of the sin, of his guilt, of searching for something. It's a picture of his, his life, his previous life, where he knew he was missing something. See, we find ourselves in trees too, don't we? We find ourselves in trees, maybe a tree of hiding shame like Zacchaeus, or feelings of inadequacy or guilt, perhaps unrepentant sin. Jesus, right here, right now, comes to us too and invites us down, just like he invites Zacchaeus down. He meets us with his love. See, Jesus could invite Zacchaeus down from the tree because he knew he would eventually go up on a tree. Not just to climb up, but to hang on the cross for, our, for the sin of the world. Jesus hung on a tree, naked and bloody, completely humiliated. He took what Zacchaeus had upon himself so that he could invite Zacchaeus down. And he does the same with us. He meets us in love. He invites us down so that he can take what we're holding and nail it to the cross. And when he cried out, it is finished. He meant it. So we can come down from whatever it is that is getting in the way or we feel is causing brokenness in us and come to Jesus. We can, we can respond to him. And Zacchaeus moves toward Jesus by responding in his love. He says, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, where did he get that number from? Did he just pull it out of his back pocket? I think four times. That's a good one. I'll do four times and half the possessions. Or four times and three quarters. Or three times and three quarters of my possessions. What is it that leads him to land on this? Well, if you look at the Old Testament in Leviticus, for the dishonesty and the, the stealing that Zacchaeus has done with people, the payment back, according to the law, is four times the amount. So Zacchaeus, responding to Jesus' invitation, obeys and says, I need to center myself. I need to bind myself to you. I need this law in my life to keep me in a relationship with you. I need to obey. But it's more than that. Because it's half his possessions too, isn't it? Where does he get that number from? Well, I was doing a little bit of reading this week, and they were saying that giving away 20% of your possessions was seen as the highest amount 
that was responsible. Any more than that, and you were being ludicrous. You're just trying to prove something. Right? Is that what Zacchaeus is doing? No. What he's doing is he's giving himself to Jesus. He is doing what the rich man in a few chapters earlier couldn't do when Jesus says, sell everything. He says, I don't want your riches. I want you. What is, what is the bounded set in Christianity? It's you. Jesus wants all of you. And Zacchaeus responds and gives himself to Jesus. Jesus invites us to do the same. We have a meal in front of us. It's a meal that we're all welcome, invited to come to. It's a meal where Jesus hosts us. Where we receive the nourishment of his love for us when he took our sin and shame and took it to the cross. But this table has an entrance requirement. And it's not a certain prayer. And it's not a certain saying. It's you. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow with everything you've got. And Jesus promises heaven on earth. A life free. Free of guilt. Free of shame. Free to obey. And so we sing, take me as I am. Right? Take me as I am. I give it all to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words of grace to us, your words of invitation that you have done for us we cannot do for ourselves. You have paid the price for our sin and shame and nailed them to the cross. Lord God, help us by the power of your spirit to respond. Lord, we give ourselves to you. Take us out as changed people. In Jesus' name, amen.